0: Well, hello everyone. This is now our third Sunday of having suspended services as a result of the coronavirus that is occupying the attention of our world, and so we are continuing to make adjustments with our weekly schedule. We're still uncertain as to when we'll be able to gather together again for our regular corporate worship gatherings. We are hoping to be able to do something on Easter Sunday, probably outside if possible but we'll keep you posted as that date approaches. So we trust that you are safe and well, and hope that this uh, teaching of God's Word is beneficial to you today. Now open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to continue taking a look at these letters that were written to historical churches at the time of John, the apostle who is widely believed to be the author of this while he was on the Isle of Atmos at around the year 90 A.D., these are historical churches that were actually in existence. And because this is God's word, these words are true for us today, just as they were at the original time that they were penned. So let's read together in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to focus on verses 12 through 17. Here's what God's word says to us. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum right, the one who says, who has the sharp two-edged sword, says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there are some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who, in the same way, hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. To him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. So we're going to follow a very familiar outline as we have looked at the last several weeks. And so the first part that we see on our outline is that this is written to, or excuse me, this is penned by the messenger. Verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum right, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, says this. So as always, the messenger is Jesus himself. He is speaking to these churches directly and specifically through the apostle John. Now he addresses this message to the angel which we understand to be the pastor, the elders, or those who are responsible for the leadership of the church, the well-being of the flock of God's people. And so this is who it is being written to specifically. Now, there isn't a specific title for Christ that is mentioned here, but rather what we see is a function of the Lord. The messenger possesses the two-edged sword. Now we understand from scripture that the two-edged sword is the word of God. We get this from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and attentions of the heart. But the Word of God is not some inanimate object. It's not just a collection of letters or a literary work that is to be read and studied. The Word of God is Jesus Himself. At the beginning of John's Apostle, He would write these words in John 1, chapter 1, verses 1 and 14 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now as we talk about the person of God, there are many in the culture, many in the church, who love to emphasize the love of God and the grace of God, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, the kindness and the blessing that comes from God. But as we look at this particular passage of scripture, the choice of words that Jesus is using is emphasizing a very different aspect of God's attributes. Now, when we talk about the attributes of God, we can't pick and choose them. God is who he is, and all of his attributes work perfectly in harmony all of the time. And what these passages of scripture speaks to us today is this. It affirms that Jesus is judge. The word of God is living and active and a two-edged sword Jesus is the word of God himself, and in this passage, it affirms that he is judge. Now notice that the two-edged sword is sharp. A sharp sword is a very dangerous weapon. No one would ever go into battle and have a sword that was dull because it would not accomplish its purpose. So the words that are being used here emphasize that the one who holds the two-edged sword is is coming to them in judgment, and this sword that he is bringing is very, very sharp. Now later, in this same book, John will describe how the Lord will appear at his second coming. So in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 15, we read these words. And John describes what he sees here. He says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now listen to this, verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses... From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. So Jesus, who is going to come in righteousness and in faithfulness, is going to come in judgment with a sharp sword so that he may strike down the nations. At his second coming, Jesus will judge the world by the truth of his word. But not only this, he judges our lives, those who call him Lord and Savior, who know him as our Father, we will be judged on the basis of his word and our obedience to it. This is the message that is being delivered to the church at Pergamum and to the church's all around the world today is that Jesus's judgment is going to come with a sharp sword on the basis of who he is as the word word, and on what it is he has said to us. We will focus on the function of this two-edged sword throughout the remainder of this passage. So we've seen the messenger. Now next, number two, we see his commendations. Jesus has a combination to this church in Pergamum, and we find this in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, Jesus knows two things about this church. Number one, he knows their setting. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. He knows how difficult it is to be a Christian in this city of Pergamum, just as he knows how difficult it is to be a Christian in where we live and in other parts of the world that are far more hostile to Christianity, Christianity than what you and I would experience today in the, in the United States. So he knows how difficult it is to be a Christian. These people live in a city of absolute wickedness. Now, by um, comparison, it's being described here as a place where Satan's throne is, and we often call Las Vegas Sin City because of the debauchery that takes place in that city. Some would liken Satan's throne to Las Vegas, but this city, the city of Pergamum, was far worse, and this is the place where these people were to dwell. They weren't part-time residents. They weren't passing through. They didn't have a vacation home where they would spend a majority of their time. This is where they found their permanent residence in this place at Satan's throne where he dwells. Now, the city of Pergamon was the center of emperor worship in the province of Asia, and it was also filled with the worship of many, many pagan gods. Each of these pagan gods and the act of emperor worship promoted all kinds of idolatry and with it all kinds of immorality. For example, within the city of Pergamon, there was the temple of Askelopias. He was known as the snake god of healing. He was depicted as a snake, and so his temple was filled with non-venomous snakes, and they would roam through the temple area, and because he was depicted as a snake, these snakes roaming throughout the temple were, to these people, the very presence of this false god. So people would travel from all over the ancient world to be healed, and they would lay down in the temple, sometimes sleeping in the temple, waiting for one of these non-venomous snakes to come across them, to touch them, to slither on them, and in doing so they believed they would be healed. But ask yourself this question. What does a snake represent to a Christian? Well, we know that in the Garden of Eden, Satan arrived in the form of a snake to tempt Eve to sin, to disbelieve God, to doubt what he had said, and to choose to rebel against the very clear instructions of God. But not only was this temple to Asclepius, there was also the altar of Zeus. Now this wasn't a temple, it was simply an altar. It was a massive horseshoe-shaped colonnade court that measured a hundred and twenty feet wide and a hundred and twelve feet deep. In the center of this horseshoe-shaped structure was an altar that was at least 18 feet high. At the base of this structure, not the podium itself, but the structure itself, Some 446 feet, there was a depiction of great battles between the gods and the giants. And of course, the gods won all of those battles. And so as you would approach this city on the road from afar, from a distance, you would see this massive structure set high on a hill, and it looked like a throne that was overlooking the surrounding area. It was no mistake that this looked like an altar because the implication was very, very clear. There was one that you were to worship here, and that was Zeus himself. So Jesus knows how difficult their setting is, but also as a part of this commendation, he knows their loyalty. The latter part of verse 13, he says, You hold fast my name, did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So in this incredibly difficult environment, they maintained a commitment to Christ. They did not deny their faith. Not only in the emperor worship, but also in pagan worship, they held fast their faith, but also in the face of persecution. There is the individual named Antipas, and scholars don't know who this individual is, and there isn't any mention of this event, but he is described by Christ as his faithful one, his witness. So in spite of their faithfulness, in spite of this commendation that Jesus gives to them, while they are living faithfully in this very difficult place, Jesus also has a rebuke. The rebuke is found in verses 14 and 15, and Here's what he says, but I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who, in the same way, hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So we pick up this commentary now on the two-edged sword. It has two functions. And these two functions are brought about as a part of this review. So, number one, the two-edged sword has a function to convict and to change. So there are two key issues within the Church of Pergamum that this sharp two-edged sword is coming to deal with. There are two key issues. Number one, letter A, they are tolerant of false doctrine. They have allowed the teachings of the Nicolaitans to coincide along with sound doctrine. This practice needed to change. It says that they were holding to this teaching. To hold to the teaching means to be strong in or to rule over. So they were paralleling the sound doctrine of faith in Jesus Christ with the immoral teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, as mentioned earlier in our study, nobody knows precisely who the Nicolaitan individual is. It could have been an individual by the name of Nicholas. No one knows precisely what the teachings were, but the implication is very clear. It was idolatrous, and it was filled with immorality. Now, Jesus uses the analogy here of Balaam and Balak, and this is a reference back to Numbers chapter 22 through 25, where the king of Balak, excuse me, where the king Balak, hired the prophet Balaam to come against the nation of Israel and to curse them. King Balak knew what was taking place, how the Israelites had eradicated the Amorites, and he was filled with fear, and so he thought what he would do is he would hire this prophet, make him a prophet of fire, use him to bring a curse against the Israelites to stop them, and in hopes to bring stability to the kingdom that he ruled. When, Balak, excuse me, when Balaam was unsuccessful in bringing against the nation of Israel a curse that would stop them, he resorted to leading the people towards idolatry and immorality. And he was very successful in doing that. So what we need to be aware of is when the front door is closed, our enemy, and the form in the Old Testament of Balaam under King Balak, And in this instance, to the Church of Pergamum, the teaching of the Nicolaitans, where the front door might be closed, there is a side door or a back door that will be open. We need to be very, very careful about the teachings that we adopt, that we hold strong to, allowed to rule over us, on par with, parallel to, the clear teaching of God's Word. Jesus says that the teachings of the Nicolaitans were a stumbling block and specifically and literally this means a stick trap. Kind of like fly paper being hung from a lamp or from the ceiling. It would attract the fly and it would once the fly got on that paper they would be stuck and they would eventually die. So this stumbling block is something that is going to lead God's people into sin. So the same thing is happening in the church at Pergamum They're not calling themselves Balaamites, nor are they calling themselves Nicolaitans, but they're holding to the same basic principles. It is idol worship, and it is immorality. These go part and parcel. Idolatry most often will lead us into some form of immorality. Perhaps teaching that attendance at pagan festivals is and participating in the debauchery and the immorality that took place in the worship of these pagan gods was okay. Some also hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, which represent this immorality and this idolatry. God's word, the two-edged sword, which convicts and changes, is teaching them to forsake the idolatry they have allowed to infiltrate their belief system and in their church idolatry always carries with it with it an image excuse me the image of worshiping something other than God himself it is an image worshiper it is anything that takes a higher place in our life than our relationship with God himself from the very beginning of God's relationship with the nation of Israel When he gave the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai, he spoke very, very clearly. Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 through 5. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath, Or in the water under the earth, you shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me." You see, when God spoke these words to Moses, he was saying to the people, if you are going to worship graven images, if you are going to give yourselves over to idol worship, then you hate me because there's something in your life that is more important than I am. This teaching is not restricted to just the Old Testament. We would read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. was a problem in the church at Corinth, just as it is a problem in the church at Pergamum. And Jesus himself made it very clear to his followers in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. We know this to be true. The church at Pergamum, knew these things to be true, and it appears that absolutely nothing was being done. They were tolerant of idolatry, letter B. They were tolerant of sinful lifestyles that were going to flow out of this act of idolatry. This needed also to be changed. So not only did the church know of the teaching but they knew of the lifestyles that were being lived within the church and they were doing nothing about it. Some of these people who were giving themselves to idolatry were also giving themselves to an incredibly ungodly lifestyle. We know this is inconsistent with those who profess to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. We know this to be inconsistent with what it means to love the Lord, to obey the Lord, and to follow his teaching. We would read in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. We would read similarly in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. The implication is very, very clear. What we believe matters. It makes a difference. What you and I believe to be true about who God is, about what God has said, about what it means to live a holy and righteous life before the Lord. What we believe matters. In first Timothy six, verses three and four. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. You see, those who reject sound doctrine, those who teach the holy lifestyle that Jesus advocated, they don't understand anything. What we believe affects what we do. You can't separate our belief system from the practice and from the lifestyle that we are going to live. In 2 Timothy 2, verses, uh, chapter 4, verses 2-4, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to men. You see, what we believe matters, because what we believe is going to dictate what we do, and what we do also matters. We cannot be content to tolerate false teaching and immoral lifestyles to take place within the church. We must lovingly confront with the truth. There must be a call for repentance, and we must be prepared to deal with but those who refuse to acknowledge the fault of their way and to come back to the sound teaching of God's word. You know, within some churches today, the idea of church discipline is so negative and so unwelcome that there would never be the likelihood that it would ever take place. Pastors and leaders would say things like, well, we're not the sin police It's not our business, it's not our right, it's not our responsibility to invade into the lives of other people and tell them how to live. But this is exactly why Jesus is speaking this message to the angel, to the leader, to the overseer of the church, because of the tolerance that was taking place over idolatry and immorality. Anytime there is a conversation about church discipline, about rebuking an individual as err from their way, the purpose is always reconciliation. It is to bring the wayward back to compliance with the clear expectations of Scripture, to avoid idolatry, to avoid immorality, to pursue a life that is being conformed to the image of Christ, one that reflects His holiness and His righteousness. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. False teaching will tear the church apart, and moral lifestyles will tarnish the reputation of Christ and his witness, the witness of the church in the lost world around us. You know, one of the greatest tragedies that exists within evangelistic efforts today is those who look and see hypocrisy with what is being said and with what is being done. Well, Jesus knows the difficulty of their setting. He knows that they are living at a place where Satan dwells, where his throne is. Jesus knows of the tolerance that is taking place with idolatry and immorality. But here's what you and I need to remember. The difficulty of our setting, our outward loyalty and faithfulness to Christ can never, ever be a justification for idolatry or immorality or an unwillingness to address these incredibly sinful issues. Somebody may be going through the most difficult time of their life, but it can't be an excuse to live an immoral life, to give themselves to something other than to the Lord. Now we're going to get to the second function, of the sword and the spirit in the next section so now we look at number four in our outline we look at jesus's instruction to the church through the angel we see this in verse 16 therefore repent or else i am coming to you quickly and i will make war against them with the sword of my mouth now the teaching is very very simple it is simply to repent it isn't complicated it isn't a numerical outline it isn't a bunch of bullet points it's a single instruction it is to believe and behave differently than you are turn away from your false worship and from your immoral lifestyle stop tolerating these things stop turning a blind eye to them and turn back to me this is what jesus is talking about now we look at the second function of this two-edged sword. Not only is it to convict and to change, but it is to convict and it is to condemn. Jesus says, Repent or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. When we refuse to repent, when we are unwilling to obey, when we don't want to submit, when we don't want to follow, we need to be very, very sure of this. Judgment is going to come. It may not come immediately, but it is going to come. Now notice two things that Jesus says as a part of this instruction to repent and the other part of this conviction and condemning work of the sword and the spirit. Notice two things. Number one, he is coming quickly. Now, Jesus says at the beginning of this treatise to the seven churches that he is already walking among the lampstands. He's not way out there at a distance. He isn't unaware and inattentive. He is the all-present God who is never, ever far away. The idea is that he is ready and he is positioned to act, and he is going to act quickly, likely when they are least expecting it. I am coming quickly, therefore, repent. The second thing that we notice in this is not only is he coming quickly, he is coming to make war. Now there's a pronoun change here that's important to take notice of. He says, I am coming to you to make war against them. The implication is this that Jesus is coming in judgment to the angel of the church, the elder, the pastor, the leaders, whoever they might be. He is coming to you, and he's going to make war against them, the church that is guilty of idolatry and immorality. He is coming to the leadership first. Those that have tolerated the false teaching those that have allowed immorality to root itself within the life of the church under the guise of pagan worship, he is coming to make war against them. When he comes, he's coming against those who are guilty of idolatry and immorality. Now, what happens when God comes in judgment? Well, he's going to punish You see, we can't separate God's attributes. God is going to come as judge. He will punish because he is holy and he is righteous and he is glorious and he is perfect and he is not going to tolerate the kind of sin that is taking place in the church at Pergamum. Now, we don't know exactly what it means when God says, and I am coming to you and I will make war against them, But we have to ask ourselves this, is this what we want? Do we want God to come to us and to make war against us because we are unwilling to repent of our idolatry and our immorality? Do we, the church, do we as God's children want to stand opposed to him as he comes to make war with the unrepentant? You know, it's different about this, is that earlier, if the church didn't repent, Jesus said, I will remove your lampstand here, he says, I will come and make war against you. So what is the outcome of such an event? What is the outcome if God comes to make war? Well, it's total victory for God. It is total defeat for us, because you and I cannot stand against the judgment of God as he disciplines and punishes for unrepentant sin. So we see his instruction very, very simply to repent. Now, number five in our outline, we see his promise. There's always a promise that God makes to us in these letters. Verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. To him I will give some of the hidden manna, I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. So the promise, as always, is preceded by, first of all, an appeal. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. He's not talking about physical hearing. He's talking about spiritual hearing, those who will give serious consideration to the words that they're hearing, this challenge against immorality, and idolatry. This appeal comes from Christ himself. He's not sending an archangel. It's not a prophet, but it is Christ himself that is speaking, and he is speaking to all the churches, not just the church at Pergamum, but to all the churches for all time, because God's word is eternal, and his word is the standard for all Christians and for all who are a part of a New Testament church. So to the one that overcomes those who are true believers, there are three things that are part of this promise. One, he gives spiritual food. Now, Jesus is the bread of life, and there is this allusion to manna that is hidden. It is potentially this manna that is hidden from the lost world. There was this practice in the old days of Jewish worship where they would take a portion of the manna and they would hide it in the Holy of Holies. We don't know exactly what it means, but the reality is this, is the manna has come down out of heaven. Jesus has the bread of life. He provides spiritual sustenance and spiritual nourishment for those who trust him. He is the source of every spiritual blessing And because there isn't this threat of removing the lampstand, perhaps it is that as Christ comes to make war against the unrepentant, he will give to the faithful, to the true believer, this hidden manna that will sustain them through this terrible time of judgment. Secondly, he gives to us a white stone. He says, I will give to you... A white stone. White stone is a bit of a puzzle. Something that refers. Something it refers to the stone on the high priest's breastplate, the human or the Thermum, which was thought to enable the priest to interpret God's will. It's been thought of in relation to young, or excuse me, to voting pebbles, to an inscribed invitation to a banquet, to a victory symbol that was common in Roman contests of the day, or a counting pebble. But it seems best to link the stone to the thought of the manna and see it as an allusion to an invitation that entitles its bearer to attend a banquet Thirdly, he gives us a new name. On this stone, there will be inscribed a new name. This new name, apparently, is our ticket to the Lord's banquet. We don't know what this new name is going to be, but God is the one that will give this name to us. It's not new in the sense of time, but it's new in the sense of, Of quality. The new name, the white stone, will serve as our admission pass into eternal glory. So these three things that he does as a part of his promise is symbolic of the eternal life that Jesus gives to those that are truly followers of his, to the overcomer, to the one that has an ear and hears and will repent. To those who repent, From their sinful ways, they will receive all the blessings of God. And as a result of that, God will not judge us at the great white throne judgment. If he finds in us a heart of repentance, God is not going to judge us when he comes to judge those who have given themselves over to a life of immorality and idolatry. You know, it's not difficult for us to justify or rationalize the things in our lives that take a higher importance than they should. We must always be aware that God requires first place in our lives. He and he alone is to occupy the throne of our heart and anything or anyone that interferes with the rightful place of God has the potential to bring about God's judgment against us if it leads us down the path of idolatry and immorality. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. We pray that we would take this warning very seriously, that we would not allow idolatry and immorality to infiltrate our lives, that we would not allow or be tolerant of false teaching or sinful lifestyles to be unchallenged in our church. We pray, Father, that you would find within us the faithfulness that you are deserving of, the holiness that emulates are being conformed to the image of Christ, a desire to rid ourselves of everything that would rid you of your rightful place. Father, we thank you that as we are a continual work in progress, that you are faithful to forgive, to restore, to cover us with your grace and your mercy, to give to us significance and meaning in our lives to assure us of our permanent relationship as your children. God, I pray that we would never fear your coming, but we would anticipate with great joy the second coming of our King, who will then enact his eternal kingdom. We give you thanks for your goodness and your grace towards us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.